I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, turn to Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 3. Book of Joshua in the Old Testament, chapter 3. If you're searching for it, you could go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, somewhere through there. And then uh, go a little bit further and you'll find Joshua, okay? Joshua, chapter 3. Many of us are old enough remember Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. He was a master storyteller who always kind of left you hanging by a thread trying to figure out exactly what he was talking about or who he was talking about. He once told of an old man who every Friday night until his death in 1973 used to visit a broken down pier on the eastern sea coast of Florida. He carried with him a bucket of shrimp as well as uh, the opportunity to feed the seagulls. For many years before, in October 1942, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, the World War I flying ace, by the way, I think was owner of Eastern Airlines for a while, uh, was on a World War II mission in a B-17 bomber to deliver an important message to General Douglas MacArthur in New Guinea. Because of a faulty navigation instrument somewhere over the South Pacific, the flying fortress became lost beyond the reach of radio. Fuel began to run dangerously low, so the men ditched their plane in the ocean. And for the next 24 days, Eddie Rickenbacker and his companions would fight the water, the weather, and the scorching sun. They spent many sleepless nights recoiling as giant sharks rammed their raft. But of all their enemies at sea, the one that proved most formidable was starvation. Eight days out, their rations were either used up or ruined by the salt water. It would take a miracle to sustain them, and a miracle took place. Late one afternoon, with his hat pulled down over his eyes to keep the glare out of his eyes, Rickenbacker dozed off, and all of a sudden, something landed on top of his head. Instinctively, he knew that it was a seagull. He also knew that his companions knew it was a seagull as well. He said he, without moving a muscle, he looked out under his, the brim of his hat And he saw his companion staring at something on top of his head. And he knew it had to be a seagull. And if only he could catch it, maybe they would have hope. He did catch that seagull. Its flesh was eaten, of course. Its intestines were used for bait, by which they they caught many other fish. The survivors were sustained and their hopes were renewed because a lone rather seagull, uncharacteristically hundreds of miles from land, offered itself as a sacrifice. And now you know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Now you know why that old man, every Friday evening at sunset, bent over and stooped, bushy-eyebrowed, white-haired, his bucket filled with shrimp to feed the gulls, and to remember that one gull on a day long past that gave itself without struggle like manna from heaven. To remember. He went out there every Friday evening and fed the seagulls. We need to remember. We need to remember the good things that God has done for us. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, the, the, the Bible gives us certain celebrations. To the Jewish nation, there was the Passover. The Passover was that celebration which commemorated God's deliverance of His people from Egyptian slavery. In the New Testament, on the night before He was crucified, Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember perpetually the loving sacrifice that Jesus made 
on the cross for us and for our salvation. In our passage for this buggy day Sunday, the Israelites were encamped near Jericho on the eastern side of the Jordan River, waiting for their leader Joshua to lead them across that river into the promised land. On the day before they crossed, Joshua told them to, quote, consecrate or cleanse yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you, end quote. Then the next day, Joshua told the priest to take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. The Ark of the Covenant was the sign of God's promise to take care of Israel as His people and the sign of Israel's promise to obey the laws of their God. Join me, if you will, in this story. Joshua chapter 3, beginning with verse 14 to chapter 4, verse 7. says, So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. If you've ever been to Israel, there are certain parts of the Jordan that look more like creeks. Maybe swollen creeks, but creeks nonetheless. That would have been no threat to cross. But this tells us that it's at harvest. And the, the, the Jordan River is at flood stage during harvest. If you've ever seen pictures of the Jordan River at flood stage, it's formidable. It's a raging torrent. And it would not have been easy to cross that. And God provides a way for His people to cross that fast-flowing river. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upst- upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap. I want you to remember those words. Piled up in a heap. Can you say piled up in a heap? Piled up in a heap, okay. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe. Tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men. He had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan River. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. And in the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Then tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Notice the instruction, the purpose for all this. Later on, years perhaps from now, your children, maybe even your grandchildren, shall ask you, what do these stones mean? And you are to say, these stones are a memorial to remind us of the way that God piled up. You got it? They piled up stones and the waters piled up. The way the waters piled up, the Jordan waters piled up so that we could cross it on dry ground as we entered the land God promised our forefathers. Now, that was not the only time that God had worked on behalf of His people. 
God would often work on behalf of His people. And in the same way that those stones near the Jericho city represented how God had been at work for them throughout their history, so the stones or bricks of our church mean that God has been at work among us for almost 200 years now. The stones or bricks of our church mean that God has been at work among us for almost 200 years. On this buggy day Sunday morning, which acts as our annual homecoming event, I want to share with you four things that the stones or bricks of our church mean. Thing number one. These stones mean that God founded a work in our community way back in 1825. These stones mean that God founded a work in our community way back in 1825. Just as we are not the founding generation of this church, so Joshua knew that he was not the founding generation of the Israelites. He knew that they had a long history. There was someone who came long before him that actually founded things, that started things. The first one to have a relationship with the Lord God of Israel. His name was Abraham. You remember God's promise to him. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story, don't we? We have the benefit of knowing that Abraham was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. And that it is through Jesus Christ that both Jew and Gentile is blessed with the gift, the priceless gift of salvation. Because Jesus died on the cross for all of us. Every single one of us. Every race, every nation, every people. And through all the world might be blessed through Him. Abraham proved his devotion to God when he obeyed God and was willing to offer his son Isaac in sacrifice. On the very mountain where Jerusalem would one day stand. God, of course, commended Abraham's faithfulness, but He commanded him to sacrifice instead the ram caught in the thicket. Thus, human sacrifice, a mainstay of most ancient religions, would never be a part of Judaism. And Abraham would become the father of the faithful, and he'd become the founder of the Jewish faith. And from time to time, just as the Jews needed to remember Father Abraham, from time to time, it's important for us to remember our founders. I think of one in particular, John Milner. The founding pastor of Sardis Baptist Church, as our church used to be called, back in 1825. John was won to Christ by Jesse Mercer. That's another famous Georgian, not a, not a football player, but a famous theologian in the state of Georgia. John Milner was baptized by Jesse Mercer at the Sardis Baptist Church in Wilkes County, Georgia. And when John Milner moved to Barnes Store, as our community used to be called, he started a believer's church here, and he gave it the name of the church in which he was baptized. He called it the Sardis Baptist Church. We've had other names in our lifetime. Most of them we can repeat, but we've had other names during our lifetime. We were called Barnesville Baptist Church. We were called now First Baptist Church. In our founding year of 1825, Sardis Baptist Church reported a membership of 21, with 12 of them coming by baptism. By 1828, just three years later, the membership was 100. That means that our church was growing at a rate of 175% each year for its first three years. And though this church, like all churches, has had its ups and downs, 
It's had its times of growth and its times of plateaued growth. The long-term trajectory of this church has always been upward. We have always understood that we have a responsibility not to be simply nice people among nice people. But we have a responsibility to share the life-changing, soul-saving gospel of Jesus Christ so that people in our community and beyond unto the whole earth might come to know Christ and the blessing that was promised to Abraham. That in Him all nations of the earth would be blessed. John Milner went on to be with the Lord in 1841. After 16 years of pastoring this church, till I came along, he was the longest tenured pastor you ever had. 16 years. Down at the end of Zebulon Street, down this direction right here, you can go to the Zebulon Street Cemetery, and you can see the grave of John Milner. He's buried there. Tombstone that he has, a grave memorial for John Milner. It's wonderful. There's a lot of writing on that thing. It's kind of hard to read it now. And so our folks came up with the headstone that you're seeing in the following slide here. The headstone for John Milner gives you his years, 1775. One year before the Declaration of Independence. To 1841. First pastor and founder of Sardis Baptist Church, Pike County, Georgia. You say, that ain't right. This is Lamar County. That can't be right. You've got to remember, Lamar County was not formed until 1921. That's why we don't have a town square. We were robbed. Okay, we don't, have, we don't have a town square. Because the town was already here when we finally became the county seat of Lamar County. So that was Pike County way back then. Which became the first Baptist Church Barnesville, Georgia, established in 1825. So yes, these stones mean that God founded a work in our community way back in 1825. And then secondly, these stones mean that God raised up leaders who are faithful. These stones mean that God raised up leaders who are faithful. Joshua chapter 3 verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. That's really all Joshua asked for. That God would be with him as he was with his mentor, Moses. And then, of course, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 tells us, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. I want you to notice there that when it says who spoke the word of God to you, he's saying that was their main job. That was their primary task. Your leaders were to speak the word of God to you and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I have the privilege of being the 34th pastor of First Baptist Church here in Barnesville. And this church has accomplished an amazing record among Baptist churches. After 34 pastors, this church has never fired a preacher. Well, at least not yet. <laughs> Over the last 193 years, there have been a couple of occasions when the men and of the church helped a wayward preacher pack his bags, escorted him down to the train depot. I understand that. You know, you got that. You got a barrel full of that many apples. You're going to have some rotten ones. And that's all there is to it. But we have been a very, very blessed congregation. You know, even when those folks from the church and I, I heard very few stories about that. But I heard a story or two in my original days here. Some of those folks could remember that they always did that with unity and love and compassion. If they had to deal with the problem, they always dealt with it in unity and love and compassion.
Among the 34 pastors of this church in the last almost 200 years, let me mention just a few of our faithful leaders. Robert J. Willingham was pastor of this church when this sanctuary was built in 1883. He went on to be what we would today call the president of the International Mission Board and served there for 21 years between 1893 and 1914. And he was indeed the one who received the ashes of Lottie Moon when she died aboard ship coming back to this country weighing only 50 pounds because she gave her food away to the starving people of China. Cersei Garrison. He only stayed two years during World War II. Went on to become the head honcho. That wasn't his official title. The CEO of the Georgia Baptist Convention. For 25 years between 1955 and 1980, a great influence, highly, highly thought of in Georgia Baptist life. There was Howard Ethington who left Barnesville after 15 years as pastor here to ultimately become the director of church minister relations for the Georgia Baptist Convention. How many of you remember or perhaps grew up under Howard Ethington? Raise your hand. There we go. There we go. Then there was I.W. Bowen, pastor here from 1981 to 1992. Had for 28 years before that been the professor of religion and philosophy at Tift College in Forsyth. Best remembered here is bringing master life. To our church. How many of you had master life under Dr. Bowen? Look at the hands. Master life under Dr. Bowen. Fantastic. Here's the amazing thing. The unity of this church has not come at the expense of neglecting truth. Not come at the expense of refusing to make tough decisions. We have done that when we had to do that. We are a church of compassionate conservatives where the Bible is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice, and yet at the same time we seek to apply the Scriptures with compassion and mercy. Remember John's Gospel? The first chapter? In describing Jesus Christ, John's Gospel says that He was full of grace and truth. A church needs to have truth. Without truth, a church becomes permissive and fails the mission God gives it. But a church also needs to have grace. Because without grace, a church becomes cold-hearted and cannot accomplish the will of God. Those two must be married. Those two must be merged. A church has to have what Jesus had, in other words. A church must have grace and truth. May God help us to always have grace and truth. And not only has that been true of our pastoral leaders, but time would fail us to mention all of the lay leaders of this congregation in the last 200 years. Lay leaders who have been faithful to the Lord Jesus in their words and in their works, in their actions and in what they said. May we always have such leaders who understand the importance of Scripture and yet also the importance of loving people and being compassionate. Thirdly, these stones mean that God has grown up a people who are fruitful. These stones mean that God has grown up a people who are fruitful. From John Chapter 15, one of those great I am passages of John's gospel. Chapter 15, beginning with verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Then verse 8 goes on to say, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The church is in the life-changing business. The church is in the life-changing business. 
man from the back mountains of Tennessee once went to one of our large American cities. And he stood before an elevator. Had never seen an elevator before. An old woman hobbled onto the elevator. The doors closed. A few minutes later, the doors reopened. There was a young, attractive woman marching smartly off. The mountaineer hollered to his son, said, Billy, Billy, go get your mama. We're going to put her in this thing. (laughs) When I was a freshman at Banks High School in Birmingham, Alabama, I remember a substitute teacher that I had. He was going to seminary in the evening, and he was a substitute teacher in the daytime. And he came probably 10 or 12 times to the classes I was involved in. What I remembered about him is that he had great character, was a fine young man, very caring spirit, had a joy in his life, and a sense of purpose that was almost, uh, almost catching. And I thought, that, I thought that if I had pursued the same vocation with my life, I could become just like him. That's not how it works, is it? I don't want you to misunderstand something. But I do want you to understand this. That young man so impacted my life that I wanted to become a minister before I even became a Christian. That was the kind of impact he had on me. And all of my tomorrows were transformed by a substitute teacher whose name today I cannot even remember. But my life was touched. And my life was transformed by someone who gave their all to Jesus Christ. Notice again verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When Jesus speaks of our abiding in Him and so bearing fruit, one of the things He's talking about is a changed life. God is glorified when Christ changes people's lives. Nothing speaks louder than a changed life. People can argue with our theology, but they cannot argue with our lives. If Christ has changed your life, there's no explanation for that beyond Jesus Christ Himself. Our lives are to reflect the fruit of the Spirit instead of the works of the flesh. And when they do that, they will draw people to Jesus. That's why fruit in the Bible also refers to souls won to Christ. On January 21st, 1930, the name of Harold Vidian became synonymous with heroism. On that day, England's King George V was scheduled to give the opening address at the London Arms Conference. The king's message was to be sent out by radio all over the world. But a few minutes before the king was to speak, a clumsy member of the CBS staff tripped over an electrical wire, broke it in two, cutting off the whole American audience. Without hesitation, Chief Control Operator Harold Vidian grasped one end of that wire with one hand, the other end of that wire with the other hand, and he acted as a conduit, restoring the circuit, ignoring the pain that he felt. He continued to hold on until the king's address was over. There is in that story a challenge for us. The message of the king of kings must go to the whole world. Romans chapter 10 asks the question, how shall they believe in him of whom they've never heard? We must be conduits of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And the only question for us is, will we be a conduit for the soul-saving message of the King of Kings? That's our responsibility. Lastly, these stones mean that God will be as good to us in the future as He has in the past. These stones mean that God will be as good to us in the future as He has been in the past. 
Psalm 105 is a psalm about the goodness of God. It's a psalm looking back and praising God for His goodness in the life of the writer. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him, sing praise to Him, tell of all of His wonderful acts. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. Remember the wonders He has done, His miracles and the judgments He pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, His servant. O sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word He commanded for a thousand generations. Praise God for all that He has done. Life got a lot of change to it. Things seem to always be changing. Past Thursday at Young at Heart, I told the story of when I was a sophomore at Auburn. Spent my first year at college at Manatee Junior College. You know, high school with ashtrays is what we called it. Manatee Junior College. Went to Auburn my sophomore year. My older brother Gordon, for whom you've prayed, and I appreciate that, my older brother Gordon was a senior at Auburn at that time. We roomed together my sophomore, his senior year. We had a great time together. And, but the summer before that, I had been working uh, at the Sarasota Herald Tribune in Sarasota, Florida. I know was not a journalist. I wasn't writing the paper. I wasn't even printing the paper. I was cleaning up after those who printed the paper. Okay, that's what I was doing. I was walking through the plant one day and somebody said to me, Hey, you're losing your hair. I said, you're crazy. You know, I wasn't the kind of guy to take a mirror and look you know, in two or three different mirrors and try to find out what was going on back there. I assumed everything was okay till somebody told me different. You know. And sure enough, I ran into the restroom and hooked up several mirrors and began to look. And he was right. I was losing my hair. My mother told me I should have punched my grandfather in the face. I got it from him. You know, he lost his hair too. So anyway, I'm, I'm losing my hair. And I remember one particular evening I was getting kind of down and out and depressed about losing my hair. And when you're 20 years old, you do that. And uh, I was talking to my brother Gordon. He got very philosophical on me. He said, well, you know, Garth, change is the only constant in life. I said, thanks a lot. That's really comforting, you know. He would tell you today that he was wrong. Change is not the only constant in life. And there's more things to life than that. Even when we look beyond Benjamin Franklin's death and taxes. God is the great constant in life. I will always be there with you, God said. I will never leave you nor forsake you, God said. He's the great constant of our lives. And because He is the great constant of our lives, no matter what changes, no matter how uncomfortable we are with that, we need to look to Him. And one of the things we need to do as we look at the future is to look at the future with vision. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Sometimes we resist changing because we lack the vision to see the future. Next week we'll talk a great deal about that, a great deal about the future and where we're going, where we're heading, how we need to get prepared for that. We'll be introducing to you a new student, young adult building. Our prayers are, of course, that you will enthusiastically support that because we believe that's where 
we're going in the future. But we need your help to do that. And we ask God to give you the vision to do that. When the railroads were first introduced in the United States, some folks feared that they'd be the downfall of our nation. There's an excerpt from a letter by Martin Van Buren, then governor of New York State, to the President Andrew Jackson, dated January 31st, 1829, and it reads like this. As you may know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended the people, or intended that people should travel at such breakneck speeds. Change. You're getting it now, aren't you? (laughs) You're getting it now. The um, truth is, change comes to us all. We all have to deal with change. I'm not a big fan of change. I've got to be honest with you. People know me. The staff's always kidding me. I'm not a big fan of change. Joe Edwards can tell you I'm not a big fan of change. He helped me to start on a computer 15 years ago. I've taken a hammer to seven or eight of them, but we, I've still got a good one that works, you know. I'm not a big fan. i still got a flip phone. When I find something that works, I don't leave it, okay? I'm not a big fan of change. But I know that we must. If we want to be effective, if we want to be relevant, if we want to have a future, we've got to change. And what am I talking about changing? Well, we should never change the message of the church. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should never perish, but have everlasting life. We don't change that message. We can't change that message. We don't change the mission of the church. Go therefore into all the earth. Make disciples of every nation by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by teaching them to do everything that I've taught you to do. And behold, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the world. That's the great commission. We don't change the mission of the church. But the methods of the church... We must regularly consider changing our methods in order to continue to minister to our community in a relevant, effective, and meaningful way. And we'll be talking about that next Sunday morning as we talk about our student young adult building. It's important for us to have the desire to continue to do the mission of the church and proclaim the message of the church beyond our generation. It's important for us to give a a hand up to the next generation. That they might be able to accomplish the same mission. They might be able to proclaim the same message. God holds us accountable, not just for the here and now, but also for tomorrow and how we prepare for tomorrow. Change. Speaking of change, has your life been transformed through a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that's the most important question we could possibly ask you. Has Jesus changed you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here in this place. And ask, Father, that you would bless this time of invitation. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.